Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Sir, are you awake? Sir, are you... Oh, God! Jimmy! Jimmy, come upstairs! Mr. Rubenstein is on the floor! My God, Mortar, what are you talking about? Just come! Jesus, he's... His face is so dark. Why is it so dark? Uh, I don't know. In a Fifth Avenue mansion on January 27, 1955, a butler named Mortar went about his morning routine and brought his master a tray of breakfast and coffee. But there was nothing routine about what he discovered. His master, 46-year-old Sergei Rubenstein, was lying on the floor bound and gagged, wearing his signature navy blue silk pajamas. His hands and feet were tied with cords from Venetian blinds, and his mouth was sealed shut with heavy adhesive tape. Those who wished to catch his murderer would find only silence instead. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our first episode on Sergei Rubenstein, an investment banker known for his miserly ways. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Originally from Russia, Sergei Rubinstein started his professional career in 1932 as assistant manager at the French bank Banque Franco-Asiatique. By 1955, he had worked his way up to become an investment banker and financial leader of several companies, including the Panhandle Oil Company based out of Texas. Despite his great success, Sergei had quite the negative reputation. He was known to manipulate funds, sleep with numerous women, and secretly wiretap the phones of his friends and acquaintances. In his quest for money, fame, and success, he ceaselessly betrayed business partners and even his own family members. When his murder investigation began, the suspect list was reported to be nothing short of 10,000 names long. Sergei had left a maelstrom of angry and resentful businessmen in his wake, 
not to mention jilted ex-lovers. Despite his poor behavior, people wanted to be around him. He threw lavish parties, had wild adventures, and possessed an obscene excess of money. His penchant for hedonism would only make his murder that much more difficult to solve. Sergei Rubinstein was born in St. Petersburg, Russia on May 18, 1908, to parents Stella and Dmitry Rubinstein. His mother was the daughter of a famous Russian grain merchant. His father, Dmitry, was Jewish and an agent for General Vladimir Sokomlanov, the Russian Minister of War. As an agent, Dmitry's job was to negotiate with war contractors. While this was a legitimate position with real responsibilities, it most often became a means for Dmitry to pad his pockets by taking bribes in secret. But for Dmitry, bribes weren't enough. He expanded his interests to real estate, and he started buying property in promising areas. He also began giving loans to nearby aristocrats, and through those loans, he developed an extensive network of nobles. He became indispensable to the richest people in the country. The mission paid off. Within no time, he moved his family, Stella, Sergei, and Sergei's older brother, Andre, from the suburbs to a castle in the richest area of St. Petersburg. It wasn't long before Dmitry Rubinstein became one of the most affluent people in all of Russia. It is believed he even gave financial advice to the famous Grigory Rasputin, a mystic known for his ties to the Russian royal family and for his almost supernatural ability to survive assassination attempts. Needless to say, Dmitry Rubinstein had made quite the name for himself. Ultimately, his work earned him the Russian equivalent of $200 million. Dmitry's dealings would set the stage for Sergei's later interest in business, money, and power. Dmitry's atypical business behavior even extended to his intimate relationships, further impacting Sergei's approach to women. This was exemplified when Dmitry took a mistress. Instead of rejecting the idea, Sergei's mother, Stella, took the mistress under her wing, bringing her with them to practically every event or dinner that they attended. And while Sergei witnessed the wealth and excess that his father's corruption provided, he also witnessed the consequences of that corruption. In 1916, when the Russian Minister of War Sukomlanov was charged with corruption and treason, Dmitry was also sent to jail for his participation. Dmitry was eventually freed in 1918 and took this opportunity to pursue new horizons outside of Russia. When Sergei was just 10 years old, Dmitry moved his family to Sweden. In 1920, the Rubensteins moved to Vienna. Sergei and his older brother Andre attended school there, but the schoolboys picked on Sergei for his fancy attire. He didn't care much for school, but he excelled in the subject of economics. Despite his natural talent for handling money, Sergei spent his school years getting into trouble. As a teenager, Sergei frequented nightclubs and often got into fistfights. He also suffered from bouts of depression. While still a teenager, Sergei's behavior got so bad that his parents sent him to a therapist. The man's name was Dr. Alfred Adler, a French psychologist who coined the well-renowned term inferiority complex. I've come to my conclusions about you, Sergei. You think I'm a psycho? You're a neurotic, and you possess an inferiority complex. I should... I 
should know what that means, right? Well, it means that you are constantly in an anxious state. That is normal for you. Always restless. So you should cure me then? I can, but only at a price. You know who my father is. I do, but I'm not talking about money. The price you would pay is your opportunity to be a great man in the world. As you are now, you will be driven by ambitions and desires all your life, forever reaching for more and more, never truly satisfied. I'm sure I'd be satisfied if I was a Grand Duke or something. Only if I cured you, but then you'd just be an ordinary person. Which do you prefer, cured and ordinary or ill and magnificent? I don't want to be ordinary. I didn't think so. Sergei would often tell the story of this conversation throughout his lifetime. Dr. Adler greatly influenced Sergei's growth. While he was still in his teens, Sergei's parents introduced him to Alan Gordon Foster, a noted smuggler who operated all across Europe. Glad you rang me, Sergei. How are things? I often feel out of place, but I think I know where I can fit in better. Where? Wherever the money is. Can you help me? Tell me what to wear, the proper ways to act. I don't want people to make fun of me. I want them to think they are less than me. Hmm. <laughs> You're a natural aristocrat. Foster gave Sergei advice on his wardrobe and how to act in high society. In addition to his lectures on these sorts of topics, Foster also told Sergei to go to England. The finance world was booming there at the time. Sergei did as he was advised. In 1926, when Sergei was about 18, he moved to England where he studied at Cambridge University. He eventually earned a degree in economics. Soon after, he met Alfred Massenet, the nephew of Jules Massenet a famous composer who had close ties to French businessmen. In 1932, Sergei moved to Paris, France, where Massenet helped Sergei get a job as the assistant manager of two French banks, Banque Franco-Asiatique and Banque Manchou. Sergei was only 24 years old, and this title was fairly rare for someone so young. It was here Sergei learned the ins and outs of banking and investments, starting him on his path of embezzlement and illicit market manipulation. This was only a few years after the stock market crash that started the Great Depression, so his following monetary indiscretions were especially deplorable. In the time that Sergei was learning how to swindle people out of their money, his brother Andre was focusing on a different pursuit, marriage. I've asked Valerie to marry me. You did? Yes. It will be a quick wedding. You scoundrel. No, no, it's not like that. Her mother doesn't... She doesn't fully approve. Forget the old hag. Congratulations are in order. And a wedding present. Oh, no, no, no. Don't, don't worry yourself. Why don't you get Valerie something nice and send me the bill? Are you sure? We're family, aren't we? So Andre purchased an expensive diamond brooch for his wife-to-be... But when he sent the bill, Sergei refused to pay it, blaming Andre for buying such an extravagant gift. This incident would be one of many that caused a rift between the two brothers. But Sergei was also causing a rift between himself and the French government. While working at the bank, he began short-selling the franc. Short-selling currency is a particularly pernicious crime. 
Different countries use different currencies. So, to trade, there has to be a way to establish an exchange rate between them. This exchange rate fluctuates, depending on a number of esoteric factors. By short-selling the franc, Sergei was selling it for less than it was worth. This would affect the value of the franc and actually cause it to decrease in the market. Naturally, the French government didn't like it when they noticed that their currency was being devalued. Sergei Rubinstein, who's asking? This decree hereby orders you to leave the country of France and never cross its borders again. Well, then your timing is impeccable. I was getting quite bored of your country. On August 11, 1935, Pierre Laval, the Prime Minister of France, ordered Sergei Rubinstein to leave the country. He issued a decree which two officers took to Sergei right as he was boarding a plane headed for London. Short-selling the franc was such an awful crime, he was banned from the entire country. Sadly, this wouldn't be the worst blemish on Sergei's track record. This was just the beginning. Coming up, we'll dive deeper into Sergei's life in crimes. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. After being booted out of France in 1935, 27-year-old Sergei Rubinstein moved to London determined to make a name for himself. He bought stock in the British company Chosen Corporation LTD, which owned gold mines in Korea. Shortly after, one of the company directors was convicted of misusing funds and its stock prices fell. Using his business acumen and powers of persuasion, Sergei convinced the board of directors to hire him as the replacement in 1937. Once in power, Sergei sold the gold mines to a Japanese company. Instead of distributing the funds from the sale to the other stockholders, he kept all of the money for himself. One of those stockholders was his own brother, Andre. He, once again, had cheated his own flesh and blood. For Sergei, dishonesty, fraud, and betrayal were just tricks of the trade. And the world was catching on. He began garnering quite the negative reputation, and his business opportunities in England began to disappear. Looking to leave his reputation behind, Sergei set his sights on America. In the 1930s, America had an immigration quota that included Russian citizens, and that quota had been maxed out. Sergei was a Russian citizen, so it would be difficult for him to immigrate to America. As a workaround, 
Sergei procured a fake Portuguese passport under the name Sergei Manuel Rubenstein de Rovello for $2,000. In 1938, when Sergei was 30 years old, he used his fake passport to enter the U.S. Once in the United States, Sergei established roots in New York City as an investment banker on Wall Street. He worked hard to build an empire, and his business acumen soon earned him the nickname the Great Wall Street Operator. From 1938 onwards, he started his work by investing in companies, getting on their board of directors, and eventually taking control. One example of this was his acquisition of Panhandle, an oil refining company based out of Texas. He helped the company grow, bought smaller competing companies, and created subdivisions of the company focused on drilling, life insurance, and even exportation. Sergei's starting investment was $600,000. Within four years, he had made three and a half million dollars. During his time at Panhandle, his social life was also thriving. He ran around with many, many women. In 1940, when he was 32 years old, he met Lorette Kilborn. Lorette was an 18-year-old blue-eyed blonde model, and she had a twin sister named Betty. Lorette was the quieter of the two, more demure. She kept herself somewhat at a distance from others, but Sergei was more than willing to take on the challenge of courting her. What did you think of the flowers? Which ones? You sent several. All of them. Did you like them? Of course I liked them. What girl doesn't like flowers? What did your mother say? Did she like them? She did. She even wonders what you might send next. He wined and dined Lorette, took her to the theater, and threw her endless parties. It seemed that they were on the fast track towards marriage. To say love didn't factor in at all would be false. But to say it was the only reason for his courtship would also be a lie. Sergei's immigration status was an ongoing issue, and Lorette was an American. Marrying a stunning American woman and starting a family would solidify his place in the U.S. But the road to marriage would not be as simple as either of them had hoped. One night in late 1940, Sergei met up with Lorette's twin sister, Betty. How's the veal? Perfectly tender. Don't you wish everything your mouth touched was as tender? Sergei? Yes? Your hand is on my knee. I don't want it there. What a sourpuss you are. Waiter, we'll take the check. Betty was infuriated at Sergei for making a pass at her. Later that night, Betty sat down with Lorette and told her sister that she should not marry Sergei. For the first time, Lorette expressed her own reservations about Sergei, but she also felt pressure from her mother to marry for financial security and status in society. Sergei and Lorette married on March 19, 1941, when Sergei was 32 years old. Afterward, they held a reception at a hotel in New York where several politicians, foreign ambassadors, and socialites toasted the marriage of the couple. Lorette was only 19, and she was in for a rocky marriage. Lorette had a child right away, a daughter they named Alexandria. And while Lorette was busy raising Alexandria, Sergei was busy being unfaithful. He took up several mistresses, but if any man looked at Lorette, he would go into a rage. He sought to possess her, but he did nothing to cherish her. 
The only thing Sergei truly cherished was his money. He was so miserly that even with his great wealth, he continued to refuse to pay the money he owed stockholders from the sale of the Korean mines three years prior. Later in 1941, Andre and his wife, Valerie, sued Sergei for their share of the sale. Ultimately, the case stalled in court. The ensuing sibling drama put a nail in the coffin of their relationship, but more pressing matters were about to arise. After the birth of their second daughter, Diana, Sergei and Lorette were scoping out a potential business venture in Long Island, looking to buy real estate. That's when they heard a news bulletin on their limo radio. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. After a devastating surprise attack, the country was thrown into the greatest armed conflict the world had ever seen. The nation scrambled to organize its armed forces. Then the draft came. Sergei appeared before the local draft board at 33 years old. As most Americans raced to fight for their country, Sergei raced to avoid the fight. He claimed he was unable to serve because he had seven dependents. His mother, his grandmother, his aunt, his wife, his two daughters, and an old family friend from Russia. Sergei was given a deferment, but after the deferment ran out, he was drafted a second time. In another attempt to avoid service, he claimed that he was a Portuguese citizen from a neutral country and therefore couldn't fight in the American army. He also claimed before the draft board that he only earned $11,000 in 1940, and with such a low income, he couldn't afford to serve. In reality, as an investment banker, he had actually earned about $337,000 that year. He successfully evaded the draft on several occasions and avoided serving in World War II. By 1942, Andre sued Sergei a third time for the money owed to him. But the stakes were much higher for Andre and his wife Valerie. Andre's kidneys were failing, and he and Valerie were running out of money. Yet Sergei still refused to pay them. Desperate, Valerie went to his mother Stella and asked for cash. Stella was living in an apartment complete with maid service, paid for by Sergei, but she claimed she didn't have the money to help out her son and daughter-in-law. Conrad Stickgold, one of Sergei's friends and business partners, was bewildered by Sergei's behavior. My God, Sergei, why won't you just cough up the money and settle this once and for all? And miss out on all these great jousting sessions with Andre? Life would be so much duller. You're sick, you know that? Andre and Valerie became so destitute that they were literally living off bread and water. Valerie blamed Sergei for their plight. In early 1943, it all came to a head. Andre collapsed and ended up in the hospital. How are you, my love? <sighs> Tired. Excuse me? There's someone on the line. For Andre? Who is it? The man said he's his brother. You don't have to take it. <clears throat> Hello? Get out of that hospital at once. Sergey? Get up and get out. I'm 
not going to pay your bills. Do you understand? What's he saying? Nothing. It wasn't long before Andre's condition worsened. He died on March 25, 1943, of uremia, This condition occurs when toxicity builds up in the blood and causes kidney failure. If Andre had been given the money to pay for proper medical attention, this may have been prevented. Why don't you join your family in the lobby? They're here? Yes. I'm not paying for this. You have killed your brother! Valerie's outburst toward Sergei wasn't the end of her fight. She continued pursuing him in court. And soon, more disgruntled people came out of the woodwork. Even his friends and business partner, Conrad Stickgold, began to turn on him. Conrad and Sergei had made a deal that Conrad would serve as a broker in the sale of $300,000 worth of oil lands that Sergei owned. Sergei couldn't sell the lands himself due to his bad reputation, so Conrad helped him out. That money belongs to me, Sergei. I brokered the sale. Sit down, Conrad. Have a cigar. I don't want a cigar. I want my money. Our agreement is no longer valid. No longer valid? What in the world? You wouldn't reveal the names of the buyers. We agreed I could keep that confidential. Doesn't matter now. Yes, it does. I want my commission. Yeah, too bad. This pretty much ruined their working relationship and their friendship. Conrad was yet another person Sergei owed money to. His list of enemies was getting long. And it kept getting longer. His past behavior even made him an enemy of the U.S. government. In 1946, Sergei was convicted of evading the draft and he was sent to prison. He served two years in a federal prison in Pennsylvania from 1947 to 1949, and he had some of his closest associates running his various businesses in his absence. Then, more bad news came upon him. While Sergei was imprisoned, Lorette divorced him. She claimed that he had been a cruel husband who had mistreated her. It's unclear what her claim specifically referred to, but Sergei had definitely committed infidelity and rumors spread of physical abuse as well. Imprisonment and divorce would cause the average person to rethink their lifestyle. But Sergei was not the average person. In 1954, Odie Seagraves, a Texas oil tycoon and financier, grew furious and impatient. Like Andre, Seagraves had been in an ongoing battle for funds from the sale of the Chosen Corporation back in 1937. After 17 years of trying to get Sergei to pay his debts through legal means, Seagraves took matters into his own hands. Well, actually, the hands of a well-known thug named Manny Lester. Lester grew up in the Bronx, where matters weren't settled by lawsuits, but with fists. In August of 1954, a block from his home on Fifth Avenue, two men trailed Sergei. Hey! Hey! Police! Help! Pay your debts. On behalf of Seagraves, Lester had hired two men to physically assault Sergei. But the thugs that relentlessly pummeled Sergei weren't finished. Later that night, Sergei received another direct message. 
this time through a window in his apartment. The note attached to the brick read, You have your warning. Next time, you won't walk away. Then a telegram arrived. It said, Be nice, and let's settle our debts. Lester wasn't subtle with the threats. Sergei was effectively frightened. He had debts, and violent men were coming to collect. Coming up, we'll learn more about Sergei's demise. And now back to the story. In 1954, two men beat down 46-year-old Sergei Rubinstein, an investment banker known for his miserly ways, in the streets of New York. They also threw a brick through his window and sent a menacing telegram with instructions to pay his debts. All of Manny Lester's threats, physical and otherwise, got Sergei's attention. He called his lawyers, who in turn called the police and the New York City District Attorney. Meetings were held, and eventually Sergei sat down with Manny Lester. Why should I pay? I owe nothing. And that's not what I heard. And just so you know, we won't stop until you pay the amount I've written on that paper. This is ludicrous. You have no proof this is what I owe or that I owe anything at all. You have the word of some O.D.C. graves whining about money that neither belongs to him nor to you. What of your children? Excuse me? What do you think might happen to them? Two daughters, right? You shut your damn mouth. The conversation ended without anyone getting hurt, but it was clear Lester's threats would only continue. Sergei had come prepared. Through the use of a clandestine recording device, he had recorded everything on tape. Sergei had recently become a big fan of recording devices, using them on his enemies, his competitors, even his lovers. Sergei's people handed this tape to the police, and detectives arrested Lester for extortion. Sergei tried to put the entire drama behind him by traveling to California for Christmas in 1954, but he was not free from the worry Lester had sparked. Betty, his ex-wife's sister, was also vacationing in California, and he went to her for solace. This is a nice rental property you found. How much are you paying? I don't want to talk about money. How do you like your coffee? Just black. Here you go. No money talk, then. I have a feeling I'm going to die soon. What? I'm afraid to die, you know. What are you talking about? But then again, I'm also afraid to grow old. You know, this is why some people call you the Mad Russian. I'm not mad, Betty. Just aware. Despite his worries, he carried on as normal. He returned to New York to host his annual New Year's party. One of the attendees was a woman by the name of Pat Ray. She was an ex-Copacabana girl who loved to paint, and she and Sergei had been involved. Sergei had only recently burned their bridge. Pat, I didn't think you'd make it. I wasn't planning on it. You're not still angry, are you? You left a tape recorder in my boudoir. Is that something you'd easily get over? I did it to make sure you were safe, taking care of yourself. You're a beautiful liar. You know that? Don't fill up on that lousy champagne from California. The help is bringing out the good stuff. Sergei's eyes soon wandered to another woman. A woman who had been brought specifically to meet him. Sergei, this is Estelle Gardner. Pleasure to meet you. The pleasure's all mine. My mother's name is Stella. I'll let you two get acquainted. Are you enjoying yourself? Oh, yes. When all this is said and done, let's enjoy a night out. 
Just the two of us, what do you say? You don't waste any time. That's because I don't know how much is left. And so it was from that night on, Sergei and Stella Gardner began dating. She was neither rich nor famous, but she was a looker. Sergei soon asked her back to his apartment. While he handled some business on the phone, she sat with him in his study, perusing through his scrapbooks. One contained some pretty unfavorable news clippings about him. You saved all these. Why? Some of them aren't very nice. Some people read the news, others make the news. Doesn't matter if it's bad. I suppose. Are you in love with me? Well, how can I tell in such a short time? I'm not in love with you yet, but I could be, if I knew I could trust you. Can I trust you? Yes, Sergei. You can. But could he? This conversation took place just days before his murder. January 26, 1955. Sergei made plans to take Gardner out for the evening, but he had a busy day before he could let loose with his current gal. First, he had lunch with some of his associates. He made a point to eat a light meal and commented that he felt that he had been gaining weight. In the afternoon, he handled some business, went to a conference, then to a meeting on Wall Street with his associate named Stanley T. Stanley. He returned to his home with friend Teddy Schultz, where they did some work until about 8 in the evening. Schultz left, and Sergei called Gardner, but there was no answer. And probably because she was already on her way. After she arrived and they had enjoyed a round of martinis, the two headed to Nino's LaRue, a swanky New York restaurant. My mother phoned today. She said I'm a lost soul. She said even with all that money, I'm lost. Lost how? I don't know. Waiter, I'll have another martini. That's your fourth one tonight. Why, are you counting? After a long dinner, Sergei paid the bill. It was now 1.15 in the morning on January 27th. The two waited outside while the restaurant doorman flagged down a cab. The driver's name was Ernest Lamedica. He was 53 years old. He dropped them off at Sergei's apartment at about 1.30 in the morning. A bit sloppy from all his martinis, Sergei went straight to his study. Gardner followed. When she entered, he grabbed her. You love me, don't you? You're drunk. Come on. Get off, Sergei. He fell to the floor, dejected. Gardner then watched as he got up and made a phone call to his friend Pat Ray and the woman he had recorded. Hello? Hello, Pat. Serge? Yes. What's wrong? Nothing. Just felt like a chat. Are you thick? It's much too late. Go to bed. I can't. There's too much whirling around in my mind. Well, I won't encourage any more of it. Go to bed. Or at least let me. I'm going home, Sergei. All right, I'll get you a cab. He waited with Gardner outside his place, but no cabs came. She told him to get back inside because it was so cold. He eventually gave her a $5 bill and went inside at nearly 2 o'clock in the morning. He called Pat again. Hello? It's me. After giving up on that... 
He got ready for bed, removed his clothes, and brushed his teeth. Whether he actually got any sleep is a mystery. We have no knowledge of what happened until a little after 8 a.m. Sir, are you awake? Sir, are you... Oh, no. There, on the floor, bound and gagged, was the once rich and powerful Sergei Rubinstein. Cause of death? Strangulation. Could Conrad or Seagraves, whom Sergei never paid, have gotten their revenge? Manny Lester was in prison, but could he have ordered the killing of Sergei from his prison cell? And then there was the question of Valerie, Andre's widow, who would later tell a friend that she was happy that Sergei was dead. She had never received the money that Sergei owed her. Those were the people with obvious ties to Sergei. What about the ones that weren't so obvious, like the women he bedded in private? Could one of their boyfriends or husbands have found out about a salacious fling and killed Sergei in a rage? Sergei had also wiretapped phones and recorded people in secret. Did those shady actions factor into his murder? The possibilities seemed endless, and they would all, every one of them, be investigated. Once news hit that Sergei Rubinstein was dead, authorities launched one of the most extensive investigations in New York history, and the press went wild. It would be a long, unpredictable road paved with blood, sweat, and, well, barely any tears, because no one would be crying for Sergei Rubinstein. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Sergei Rubinstein. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Jessica Mallo and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, and Brooklyn Sarver. <laughs>